Hello, and welcome to Mr. America, The Bearded Truth, covering political and social issues one liberty at a time, with entertaining insights of current events and important discussions on topics that affect us all, shining the torch of liberty and brightening the future by bringing libertarianism into our everyday life. And now, your host, the friendly neighborhood libertarian, Jason Lyon, Mr. America, The Bearded Truth on Muddied Waters Media. boy we are back second time today did you guys miss the first episode you missed a hell of a show earlier if you did don't worry i understand the 2 p.m slot can be a little difficult to get into um but if you're ever at work slow on a friday afternoon you want someone to tune into we're here every friday at 2 p.m but i've got a special double header for you guys tonight. Of course, I am Mr. Murka, the Beard of Truth, Jason Lyon. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate each and every one of you for being here, interacting with these posts, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Float, Twitch, wherever you're seeing us live. Thank you so much for, for interacting, for being a part of the family here. Uh, couldn't We couldn't do this without y'all, so thank you so much for that. I'm, of course, your neighborhood-friendly libertarian. We're talking about different specific issues and how we can bring liberty to the forefront of everyone's minds. And tonight, I've got one hell of a show lined up for you. I've got the one and only Mr. Steve Dosbach. We're going to be talking about how to be more effective in our communications, how we can take arguments that go nowhere and turn them into actually communicating, actually being heard on both sides to be able to make a difference. Because we all know that our ideas are the best. That's why we're libertarians. But how we actually get those communicated and actually make a difference, that's where we're going to learn some of those tips and tricks tonight with Steve Dosbach. So I'm excited for that. But before we can dive into that, we, of course, have to talk a little bit about the thank yous. The first thank you, of course, I already gave it out to y'all. The second thank you to Matt and Spike for continuing to give me a platform to come out here to talk to you guys about all of these different issues. And... Um, a big thank you, of course, to our paid subscribers who get mountains of exclusive content, who get to come on to the monthly muddied Zoom, hang out with Spike Cohen himself, Matt Wright, the man, and uh, me when I can hop in there, and anyone else from the Muddy Waters team. Um, you could get those one Thursday a month. So if you want to get a part of this, you hop on over to anchor.fm slash muddiedwaters slash subscribe. You can sign up for there for just the cost of a couple lattes a month. I think we can all go without one or two in a month in order to be a part of this exclusive group. And so thank you to, to everyone who has already done that. And thank you to everyone who will be doing that um, as a response to this. I want to give a big thank you and shout out to Nug of Knowledge as that picture is not centered. Nug of knowledge. If you guys listen to the conversation from earlier, we talked a little bit about cannabis with the one and only William Henry. It dropped a ton of knowledge about the Nugs and about the history of it. You guys can head on over to nugofknowledge.com. Use the code Mr. or Bearded Truth. You guys will be able to get 10% off over there. Um, so you can get things, some Nugs delivered to you and you'll have the knowledge of knowing you're supporting a great cause. I also want to give a huge shout out to the one and only Kelsey Lyon Designs. If you are a if you're on the campaign, you're looking to help a campaign, you've got a small business, you've got a big business, you've you've got any kind of business, you've got events coming up, whatever you're needing for graphic design needs, Kelsey Lyon is going to take care of you. 
She is phenomenal. She has uh, worked for campaigns such as Joe Jorgensen, for Spike Cohen, for Natalie Bruno, um, for Ashley Shade. She's worked across the whole spectrum of libertarianism. She's worked for a multitude of businesses, both small and big. And the, the reviews are undeniable that she will take care of you and take your business to the next step. So couldn't recommend her enough. So if you go over to KelseyLionDesigns.com, use the code Muddied Waters, you're going to get 10% off. She's going to take care of you, and you're going to get that back tenfold. So head on over there to help support Kelsey Lyon and her amazing business and what she does. Um, but aside from that, I hope you guys have been enjoying the new schedule with the Mr. Bearded Truth show. I hope you guys have been enjoying all of that. I hope that we are able to to continue giving you guys great content and uh, looking forward to tonight's conversation with Steve Dosbach. This is something, if you guys have seen me, this is something that it's not something that you just learn and you're good at it and that's it. No, this is something that we all continue to work on to be able to be as impactful with our words as possible. So without further ado, let's bring him on Steve, how's it going tonight? Very good. Yeah, just uh, walked in downtown and we're enjoying some uh, drinks up at the uh, Sip uh, Rooftop Bar oh. and uh, came back here in time for the uh, the show here. That's perfect. Now, um, for anyone in the audience that doesn't know, me and Steve actually share counties together. He is my Libertarian Party County Chair. Uh, he's been doing a hell of a job. Moved down here just to to swoop in and to save our county. Uh, <laughs> it's been amazing. I don't now. know about save. It was in pretty good shape before. It was. It was. Yeah, great people here. <laughs> but it's been it's been amazing having you down here in this county and talking about the rooftop bar there in Greenville. It's it's a phenomenal place. I but. I'm so glad that you're able to to cut away from the drinks for a little bit to come in here and, and <laughs> intoxicate us with this wisdom. So there um, we go. <laughs> I want to first start off with for anyone who doesn't know you, um, could you tell us a little bit about your past, where you came from, and and a little bit about you? Well, I actually discovered I was a libertarian the same year the party was founded, although not connected to the party. Uh, I was, believe it or not, I was in a uh, college class. Uh, we had to take a required class in American thought and language, which as a science major, I had absolutely zero interest in. And uh, this was back in the 70s. So they had those, uh, you know, a gazillion choices for what you could sign up for. So I'm reading through all these things. No, I don't want to take that. Don't want to take that. Don't want to take that. Hmm. American radical thought. That sounds like it might be not boring. So I signed up for that. And the, the textbook, uh, collection of writings was American, American radical thought, our libertarian heritage. And it started off with Adam Smith, John Locke, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, the anarcho-capitalists, the anarcho-communists. And so uh, it was really, and that's where I realized that my views were not liberal, which is what I had sort of thought growing up in a democratic household, but rather were libertarian. Hmm. So I, I described myself as a liberal who learned economics. Um, so, uh, that's when I discovered I was libertarian. My senior year in college, um, I, we just gotten married, uh, moved into married housing and somebody there, uh, talked to me, found out about my background. I said, Oh, there's someone I have to introduce you to. Cause he wanted to see us fight. And he walked down and introduced me to Joe Houtman, who had been college Republicans, ROTC Rangers, et cetera. 
except he was also a libertarian. And so we didn't argue at all. <laughs> we just had come at it from different directions. Um, and we founded a, uh, a campus group there uh, on, on uh, uh, campus of uh, Michigan State University. And uh, it actually, was, it was interesting. We had no hierarchy, no dues or anything. This. If somebody had an idea, they pitched it, said how much it was going to cost. And if people chipped in and put forth the money, it happened. And if they didn't, it didn't. So uh, anarchism and spontaneous order. Mm, beautiful. And then uh, anyway, we decided to join the party in 79. And uh, Joe was over at my house and he was the one that made the call to national headquarters, said, uh, hey, we're a couple of new libertarians here in Indiana. Uh, we want to get involved in the Clark campaign. Who's running the Clark campaign in, in the state so we can volunteer? And their response was, funny, you should ask. And the next thing we knew, Joe was running the Clark campaign in Indiana. Um, and then about two weeks, two months later, he was the state chair, uh, you know, in sort of the way these things go. Yeah. That's anyway, that's where we, I got started in the party in 79, uh, run for office, been state chair there and in Virginia, served several terms on the national committee and then was uh, national chair. Uh, basically, I was national chair when Harry Brown ran the first time and I was at the party's executive directory around the second time. Wow. So the place uh, where I am. And then most recently, I was involved with the George Jorgensen campaign. That's uh that's quite a history there. So I, I, I feel like for somebody like me who I found out I was a libertarian kind of around the 2016 time, right around when Trump came into office, I realized how bad his ideas really were when they put into practice. I, I realized a lot of things I was arguing with with libertarians and it wasn't the way that they were delivering it to me, but it was my research in order to debunk some of the things that they were saying just in good faith efforts that kind of converted me. But as somebody who has joined the party within the last four or five years, um, a lot of the stuff that we see in the party seems to be very new. But I think that maybe maybe I'm just seeing history repeat itself um, from somebody who's seen. Uh, the, yeah, I mean, a certain extent. I mean, the, 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 some of the some of the faction battles have happened um, over time. They they often more often have been on issues more so than uh you know control but a lot of it's been on you know the radicals and pragmatists that those those battles have always been there um and i think we've been most effective when those all those groups looked for common ground because you know frankly if we stray away from our principles what are we here for exactly and if we put out things that aren't that don't connect with voters we're not going to get anywhere so you, you've got to look for that overlap between principles and practicality to kind of find that sweet spot where you can connect with people. Absolutely. One of the things that uh, one of the things that I learned, I, I did a lot of work with uh, Marshall Fritz who, with the Marshall, uh, Advocates for Self-Government. He's the one that came up with the, the diamond version of the world's smallest political quiz. Um, uh, David Nolan developed it originally and it looked like he's, a, he's, a, he's an engineering type. It looked like a graph. Yeah. And Marshall Fritz was the one that figured out to turn it on its, uh, turn the angle, get the diamond part of it, where libertarians are at the top, of course. I like um, it. But uh, so I, did, I went, uh, went around with him, did, uh, saw him give some of the presentations to, to, college, uh, to high school groups and some colleges, and also gave some myself. I also was involved with his efforts with the uh, separation of school and state, uh, Alliance for the Separation of School and State. So to sort of try to make the argument for, uh, alternatives to uh, public education. But uh, 
I think the biggest lesson I learned was actually from my teaching career. And that is that most people, when I was teaching science, most of the students I had in science and most of the people we talked to in politics approach these subjects as concrete thinkers. They're not looking at it as an abstract. So for me, when I look at science, I start with the theoretical and then I look at how to hang the practical examples on the fundamental theories. I found that very, very few of my students looked at it that way. They looked at it the opposite. They needed to see the concrete examples and then they could see how those things tied together with a theoretical underpinning. So you had to, if you wanted to confectively communicate, you had to go from the concrete to the theoretical, not theoretical to concrete. Okay. And so often as libertarians, we start everything, we start from principle and order, argue it from principle. And most of the voters we're talking about don't care. Yeah. They want to know, is this going to make my, safe, my street safe? Is it going to give me a good education for our kids? Is it going to give us a healthy economy? And, and freedom does all those things. Yes. Um, but we have to make sure that we're doing those, making those arguments along. And we have to think about what's important to the, the voters. Again, when I was teaching my students, uh, what, it didn't matter how theoretically correct what I said was. It was what they walked away with that mattered. And it's the same thing when you're talking to voters. It's, it's what do they understand about libertarianism and the Libertarian Party, not what you said. Uh, yes. Again, what, what you said could be totally correct and brilliant, but if they don't get it, you haven't communicated. And so you have to kind of start from where they are. The other thing that's important, and this is where we get into the Ransberger pivot, which I think was what you used as the, uh, the, the title for this uh, session tonight. What, that's one of the Marshall Fritz uh, communication tools. But the Mar- Ransberger pivot was starting with an area of agreement in values and then pivoting to how a libertarian solution would deliver those values, address those values better than the statist solutions. So for example, if you're talking to somebody whose concern is education, you want to start with the fact that we all want our kids to get a great education. Yes. And then pivot to how the market and choice provides that better than one size fits all uh, government solutions that are imposed from on high. How you end up with, you know, we, we want there to not be these conflicts we're seeing in schools. Yeah. And the way you get that is to have choice rather than us having to have to have political battles. You know, do we have prayer, prayer in school or not prayer in school? Uh, do we teach gender roles or not gender roles? I mean, whatever the issue is, right now, if everybody has to go to the same school that's run by the government, then it becomes this huge political battle over which side wins. Yes. If it's a market-based system, then you go to the school that matches your values. And the, your neighbor who disagrees with you goes to a school that matches their values. And you get away from all that conflict. Can, so on that, this is such an important subject because, you know, when we talk about free uh, school choice, right, we talk about using uh, education scholarships account, when we talk about tax credit scholarships, Oftentimes we just say, look, you know, from the libertarian standpoint, or when I see people advocate for this, we just say, look, it's going to be better. We don't. And and to highlight what you're talking about here is when we talk to family members, when we talk to people that 
may not be educated on what it is that we're we're fighting for we have to we have to put exactly as you said we care about the students we care about their safety we care about them being literate and and um i think it was mises that um was talking about the ways of of actually creating change in people and that is that we have to talk about what it is where you're at now where you want to go and give us a tangible path and and so within this within the pivot of what we're talking about right now the ransberger pivot it's important for us to as you as you said um that we have to say look you know we all care about the kids safety now if if you were able to move your kid to another school and that school was able to perform the same if not better wouldn't you want to do that and and so we can give those those alleys for parents and those changes. Right. And I think one of the things that I think libertarians often make the mistake with, with education, particularly at going after the wrong starting target, because we so often get talk about the economic side of it, the how we provide payments to public private schools and everything else. And we, we don't look at the regulatory side of it because there's all kinds of uh, regulations that are in place that both restrict your local public school and they restrict private alternatives that in effect in in many states it forces private schools to be if if it's an actual school not not homeschooling then you're basically forced to be sort of a mirror of the public schools and they typically don't allow things in between you either have to go complete homeschooling and you're doing everything or you have to go to a private school where they're meeting all these standards you don't have the option of, well, I want to I'll do some homeschooling, but get some supplements here. You know, you're, you're, you're limited. Again, it depends very much on the state. So from, I've always felt that the, the place to, to target where you can get the most success with people is going after all of the regulations that limit not just private schools, but your local public school. Okay, all the things they have to comply with from both the state and the federal government. So you've got you know, you have, to, you have to go 180 days a year. You have to go six hours a day. You have to have an approved curriculum, approved textbooks, certified teachers, um, state-mandated tests, all these things. And, you know, we've seen that starting up with a, a Department of Education has produced zero improvements in quality. I mean, for, forget whether you think it's, a, you know, theoretically a good idea or not. In practice, it clearly does not work. Yes. And so... You could clearly get rid of the federal de- Department of Education and all the regulations that come with it and have a- absolutely no negative effects on education. And I would argue positive effects based on where we were before the education department was instituted versus where we are now. Same thing with the state. We've had all these increases in state control, and there's been no improvements based on that. You know, get back to the point where the public schools are pretty much determined by the parents, the teachers, the administrators, the students in that area, you know, and yeah, you got the political board. And then it's not a very, if there, if you don't have all those regulations in place, then it becomes much easier for entrepreneurs to step in and provide alternatives in between home, complete homeschooling and public schooling or a full-time private school. And you're not running up against these, oh, well, you have to have a, uh, uh, a hot lunch and oh you have to have a nurse on duty and you have to have this and you have to have, you have to have so many square foot and all these other requirements they put in that restrict entrepreneurs 
from offering alternatives. And we saw a lot of that in the pandemic where people were stuck at home. They were looking yes. for some alternatives to supplement. And some states have gone, nope, 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 nope. You can't do that. Regulations don't allow it. I mean, our, our, our solution always should be focused on what is government doing that is preventing people from finding alternatives, for finding uh, solutions? Because most of the time, that's what's happening. You've got the, the government stepping in and uh, limiting uh, the ability of the market to address problems. Now, I'm going to have to play devil's advocate for this conversation so that we can, we, can, we can have those. Uh, we, can, we can learn from you. Uh, and, and if you would just explain kind of your process as you're going through this as much as you can. But somebody comes. Um, so we live in a, a fairly right side conservative area here in Greenville. Um, if somebody was to be a very staunch, progressive, left of center person, um, when you talk about reducing reducing it down to the local level, they feel as if they have even less say in that as opposed to at least having some volatility at the federal level or, you know. Um, so for somebody to raise that up and say, I, I feel like if if we came down to my local level i can't trust my neighbors to do well how how do you how do you grapple with that with somebody how do you well I mean, frankly you've got a much better chance of persuading your neighbors who you know and see who you can go down and talk to the school board you can go down and talk to people then you you have almost no ability to to uh affect legislators sitting in columbia and you have even less ability to affect legislators in Washington, and you have even less ability to affect the bureaucrats that are in the Department of Education who are appointed by the president. So you've got, you've got almost no chance of having any impact on them. Whereas your local school board, they're at least, they're human beings. You can go down there, you can talk to them, you can talk about your concerns. You can get your other people who share those concerns to pack a school board meeting. You can run somebody uh, for one of those seats and get a voice on it. You're much more likely to get a voice on that school board locally than you are to get a voice in Columbia or in Washington, D.C., especially given how gerrymandered the districts are. Here in, here in South Carolina, we have 124 state representative districts. In 2020, 64 of those 124 had no major party opposition. They either ran, they were either a Republican running with no Democrat or a Democrat running with no Republican. And so they were, unless there was a, a, a libertarian or someone else running in that district, which there were in some of those districts, uh, in other districts, they were just, they were, they were going to, they were going to escape to uh, re-election. You as a voter had no say in what they were going to do. There was no reason for them to pay attention to your concerns because they were going to get elected no matter what. Yeah. No, the, only thing they had, the only thing they had to do is concern themselves with their primary voters. And that's one of the things we see so often is that the Republicans lurch to the right because the people they have to, what they have to concern themselves with is being primaried in the Republican primary. The Democrats lurch to the left because they have to be concerned about being primaried in the Democratic primary. And the vast majority of voters who don't agree with either of those extremes are left with no real say. Whereas with the market, you've always got to say, if, if I don't like what I'm buying at Publix, 
I can go to Harris Teeter. If I don't like the, the lessons that I'm getting from a, the dance school, that, if my wife doesn't like the, the, the lessons she's getting from the dance school she's going to, there are two or three other dance schools she can go to. You know, you have choice. And if you think about it, outside of in education options, other than the public K through 12 education, you have choices. And you can decide where you're going to take your tuition dollars. And if you're not satisfied, you can take them elsewhere. Um, and that's really the idea behind some of these choice uh, systems yes. is being able to, as long as you are dealing with a public system, being able to take your uh, direct those dollars to the school that you would like your children to go to uh, rather than others. And, and again, people who are wealthy always have choices. They can always afford to go to get the school that they want, uh, the, a private school of their choice. It is people of more limited means where that don't have yes. that option where um, educational choice becomes so much more important. Absolutely. And, not, and again, not just the, not just the choosing a school, but that whole that layer of truth, but also being able to have, you know, tutoring options and um, uh, remote options, various uh, options, options that people can do that will reflect what works best for their child um, and not the one size fits. No, this works best for the school system. Well, that's nice. Yeah. But education is supposed to be for the child, not for the teacher or the convenience of the teacher or the administrator or uh, the school board members. Before I change to a different subject on this, um, I, when I went down to Columbia, I went down for a school choice bill and just having the Senate discussions. One of the most impactful and powerful messages I ever received, um, it was in favor of school choice, was a father of, I believe it was four kids, um, walked up to the microphone and during his speech, he had told, he had asked them, he had asked the whole panel of senators and he said, um, does anyone here know my child's, any of my children's name? No one said a thing. He said, if you don't know my children's name, how do you know what is best for them? If you can't, if you don't know them on the basic level, how do you know exactly what they need to be successful in school? How do you know all these different things? And I thought that was the most enlightening question I've ever, ever witnessed. Um, <clears throat> but and you, and you also see that there, in some areas, and not all, but you'll check with administrators and teachers and school board members and find out, well, where do your kids go to school? And right. oftentimes they go to private schools. <laughs> they're not sending their kids to the same schools that you're sending your kid, that they're, that they're, they're controlling the education for your kids while they're sending their kids somewhere else. So as we, as we kind of break through some of these, these conversation pieces, um, I think that one of the things that has been the most impactful for me um, is centered around some of it's around the, the criminal justice system and some of it's centered around the Second Amendment. Both of these things are, are things that libertarians feel strongly about. And oftentimes we get into conversations with people where we have vast disagreements. Um, what do you think is, is a good what's a good mindset to be in? Um, should you be a libertarian and want to get into a conversation with somebody who we would call quote unquote, a gun grabber, et cetera. Um, what's a good mindset to be in and how do you kind of work through that process? Well, uh, that there's another technique that, uh, we work with. I, I think this one was primarily popularized by, uh, Michael cloud, um, who talked about, uh, cross-dressing, uh, issues. 
So for example, if you're going to, so often as libertarians, we, we're going to talk about uh, guns. We talk about the second amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, which resonates great with people that came from the right, but, but they're already with us on the issue. Yes. It's the people that are from the left that you're trying to reach on that particular issue. So the question is, what's going to resonate with them? And more often here, it's going to be things like the fact that the original gun control laws were put in to keep African-Americans from owning weapons. They were, they're often targeted to African-Americans and people who are of color. You know, you've got it's the same laws in place, but the police don't go into the wealthy white areas enforcing those laws. They go into the poorer areas, the areas of minorities. That's where they stop people for uh, weapons. They do the same thing, same thing with drugs. The people that are in need of being able to use a weapon, have a weapon to protect themselves, aren't the people in the wealthy suburbs that have lower crime rates to begin with and where the police will show up pretty quickly uh, because otherwise, because these people vote and they, 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 they'll get, they'll be nasty to them if they don't show up. It's the places where your response time is the next morning. Um, that's where people need to be able to defend themselves. It's yes. the, the single yes. mother who is alone with her kid and needs to be able to protect herself. That's where, uh, that's what's important. Um, and hang on just a minute. It looks like, uh, let me go grab my power supply. I'm afraid that uh, my phone may wank out here in just a minute. So give me just no a problem. second. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, work on the next topic. But so we mentioned the second amendment, right? Phrasing in a way that's going to be attaching your values to their values to be able to have it to where you're being heard, right? When you talk about this, if you were to go out there and advocate for gun rights in an absolute way, um, when you talk about it in that way, you're going to cause people to have their guard up, to want to shut down everything because guns are, are from their perspective, guns are not helping in this circumstance. They're not helping in this situation. And so, um, you know, posing it of talking about the communities uh, that are going to be disproportionately affected by it, communities that will have police going through stop and frisk and all of these other things. These are things that you can kind of tie to other issues that they are vocal against um, and everything else to where that way they can they now see exactly how this plays out. And so through those, through those communications of understanding your values, understanding their values, you can make those connections. And then now they've heard you. Now they have to think about it. Now they have to grapple with their own value system to say, well, I don't like gun violence. We don't like gun violence either. Right. And you got, and flip it the other direction. If you're trying to make some headway with someone on the drug war, Okay, you don't talk about, well, it's my body, I can do whatever I want. The, the people that agree with you on that are already on your side on that issue. Okay, it's the ones that are worried about their kids getting hooked on uh, drugs. Uh, the, you know, the, oh, well, you know, if, if, if they're legal, then I'm, I'm more likely to get, my kids are going to get hooked on drugs. And you just ask the question, you know, what are they, in which case do they have people who are making money Getting your kids supplying product is there. There aren't any. There aren't liquor dealers on the campuses uh, supplying alcohol to your kids. Can your kids get alcohol? Sure, just like you can get pot. And frankly, kids generally report it's easier to get drugs 
than it is to get alcohol. That is, the legal system with alcohol is harder for children to get alcohol than the illegal system that involves for, for drugs. And so you're more likely to keep kids up. And again, this is no longer theoretical. We've got countries like Portugal, we've got states like Oregon that have already decriminalized drugs. Yes. And there is, no, there is no increase in drug crime or drugs. There's a reduction in drug crime, drug-related crimes. You see uh, more people getting help. You see fewer people turning to hard drugs. So often people don't realize one of the things that drives people to hard drugs is they're easier to conceal than the softer drugs, just as in prohibition, you saw a reduction in alcohol or in uh, wine and beer, and the, really the, the, the taking off of distilled uh, spirits because they were easier to smuggle. Mm -hmm. They were easier to conceal. Um, you know, you didn't have a, that wasn't as big a much, much of a market uh, prior to prohibition. It was prohibition that gave us uh, the mafia. You know, now it's drugs giving us the, the bloods and the crypts and or whoever the current gangs are. I, I'm dating myself here. But um, the um, making it illegal makes it more likely for your child to be get involved in drugs. And it also makes it more likely for them to get bumped up to harder drugs because essentially you're making in order to get any drug, they make a connection into the criminal underworld. And now those dealers are in a position to increase their, move them up to higher and more potent and more expensive uh, drugs. Whereas you simply wouldn't have that, uh, that progression occurring as easily if you were dealing with a legal uh, market. Again, and, I think and I'm saying by, by legal, I mean legal in the same kind of sense that we have alcohol and tobacco, or alcohol, yes. uh, alcohol being legal. Uh, it, know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not talking about being legal to for an adult to sell sell drugs to your child. Now, it shouldn't be illegal for your child. It's illegal for the adult. Yes. Um, it, and it I think the adult. I think within that conversation, though, as well, one of the important things that I like to bring up when I'm talking to somebody on the right side of the aisle, specifically on the yeah. war on drugs, is um, many people on the right side of the aisle they they believe in a firm national border. And, and one of those things that is caused our border to seem like Swiss cheese in some ways is actually is the drugs that are coming through from the cartels. Now, when you spoke about prohibition, it created the mafia and the war on drugs has created cartels. And, and so we're shipping those in. We've got drugs coming across the border. We've got humans coming across the border. We've got uh, guns. We've got violence, a huge amount of, of violence associated with it. Yes. And the, the thing about the, the border is that the vast majority of problems related to illegal immigration are because it's illegal. It's not because of the immigration. The immigration itself isn't a problem. Uh, immigrants are, every, every study that's been looked at shows that immigration is a net plus to our economy. The problem is that it is so difficult to come here legally that people end up going illegal, which creates again, another whole black market where you've got a criminal enterprises that are smuggling people across the border and then also smuggling drugs along with it. I mean, it, it all kind of goes together. Yeah. Frankly, uh, sometimes people are concerned about um, losing our culture, you know, and, and having to speak Spanish or things like that. Okay, I'd rather somebody come over here, spend a thousand dollars 
uh, to learn English than $1,000 to a coyote to smuggle them across the border. You know, let people come here legally, uh, let them work, let them go home. A lot of times people stay here because it's so dangerous to come back across, go across the border. If they were able to move back and forth, they would come here, work for a period of time, go home. Come here, work for a period of time, go home. But we've made it extremely hard for that uh, to happen. You know, if you think back, if you look back to when we had sort of the, the, the way my grandparents came here through Ellis Island, the, the acceptance rate at Ellis Island was in excess of 98%. was 98, 99% of people that, came, that showed up. And then they showed up with, there was no visa, nothing, nothing approval. They just came. Yep. And 99% of them looked at them, yep, you're good. And they were admitted. Uh, it was, you know, they did a, 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 they did a check for communicable diseases. They checked to see if somebody was a, you know, a wanted criminal that was fleeing uh, prosecution. And other than that, you're welcome. And, and again, you can put restrictions on not providing benefits. If you're concerned about, well, people are going to come here for welfare. They're not usually, but you know, if you want to put a five-year limit that you can't, you don't qualify for that after you've been, until you've been here, you've already got some of those things in place anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of the problems we have with illegal immigration would go away if we had a way for people to come here, reasonable way for people to come here legally. Frankly, the way we're able to go to other countries legally. You know, if, if I want to go to Europe, if I want to go to uh, uh, Central or South America, there's very little impediments for me to do that. Now, I'm, there may be some impediments for me becoming a permanent resident or working there, but there's very little uh, uh, impediment for visiting and for staying an extended period of time. And, you know, our, our system should be at least as flexible for people coming here as we expect it to be for us wanting to go other places. Absolutely. Um, I was actually was really surprised. So I, I when I at a former employer um, that I worked for, I worked in and went and spoke to people on both sides of the aisle of the of the duopoly aisle, if you will. Um, and in talking about some of these topics, uh, I went and I, I primaried on criminal justice reform. That's always been my, my big thing. Um, the viewers all know this. And and so for me, I was talking about civil asset forfeiture. We created a statewide movement in order to try to end that here in South Carolina. And it was amazing to me because it was so easy, of course, to sell it to to a Democrat and say, hey, look, you know, police are coming through and they're they're rounding up people's money. And it's not people that that are very affluent. This is not people that are rich. This is you and me uh, getting getting, you know, our 20s, our hundreds and everything else taken from us. And I went to the conservatives and we were able to sell the same message, you know, by framing it in a different way, because what's their value they don't want to be stepped on by by the government themselves mm-hmm. and and right. so so for us i could have if if somebody was to have recorded both of those messages of when i went to a democrat breakfast and when i went to a republican dinner and spoke about both of these messages they would have looked entirely different but at the end value was that um you know using some of the points we were talking about within this was I understood where their values were. I connected myself to them. I said, you know, we want to have to where you are are a private citizen. If you don't have issues going on, 
um, if you're not causing a problem, there sh- there shouldn't be a necessity for for police to come in and check out your stuff. And they're like, absolutely, Fourth Amendment. Yeah, I love this stuff. And I so so civil asset forfeiture comes against this. And they go, sign me up. I'm on board. I I'm yep. one of uh, one of the. I, you ha- you have to look at what their their values are, what their concerns are, and it's not. We're not changing our positions. We're not changing our principles but we're connecting them in a way that we're showing how it connects to what they care about. Mm-hmm. Because in the end, at the end of the day, most voters are not ideological. You know, we talk about, well, well those positions are inconsistent. They don't care. They, they, they don't. They, they, you know, they want their kids safe. They want, them, they, they want to have a good economy. They want to have good education. They want to have good health care. And Whatever will result in that, they're okay with. And it turns out we've got the best solutions in those areas, um, but we're not going to, for, for most of them, we're not going to connect to them based on the ideology. Um, we're going to connect them based on the practicality of what we're trying to uh, accomplish. And we can show that the principles tie that together. That, that's that's what ties our views together. So we're not we're not just doing some hodgepodge of ideas. They're tied together some, from some fundamental principles, but they work. Uh, uh, a fellow who was uh, active in the uh, the late '90s, a fellow by the name of uh, Don Ernsberger, uh, used to say, uh, "Liberty works, and liberty is right." That it, it it you have to say you have to give both the practical argument and the principle argument. I like uh, it. That you, 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 can't, you can't get by with just one or just the other. Uh, they're both important. And, and that's really why we're, when we're trying to find, uh, to get away from um, conflict in organizations such as the Libertarian Party, um, that it's not a case of, well, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get peace when one side wins out and pushes the other side aside or vice versa. It's when we can see that both sides bring strengths and we need to have position ourselves utilizing the strengths of both the radicals who are really important that they believe principle is important and the pragmatists who believe that the practicality of our solutions is important and and the fact is you have to have both yes if you want to be successful now we can have a Facebook argument. We can have like a one-on-one conversation with somebody sitting over a cup of tea and use all the best communication tactics. Do you think that that will ever t- turn somebody from a Democrat to a libertarian, a Republican to a libertarian? Or what is the purpose of when we're having these conversations? Well, I think that at the stage we're at now, um, w- one of our guiding principles used to be discovery before persuasion. Uh, polling indicates that there's something between 30 to 60 million people in the country, adults, voting age adults, who hold fundamentally libertarian views. They're not not 100-100s on the the Nolan chart or anything like that. But they're basically... It's understandable. Yeah, they basically are people that believe that we should have less government involvement, not more, and they believe it both in the social and economic spheres. Um... Our primary job is to find the people that already agree with us and to get them mobilized and active in the movement in whatever aspect of that works for them, whether it's political, whether it's on the um, 
uh, think tank type of side or the educational side, but it's, it's finding the people that already agree with us and in effect, increasing the size of our, uh, our troops, you know, it's recruit your army before you go to war. Yes. Um, and so the, uh, you know, I talked to, to students, you know, people that have, uh, you know, what brought you to the Libertarian Party, for example, or what, what made you believe you're a Libertarian? And I rarely run into somebody who said, well, you know, I was arguing on Facebook with this Libertarian, and I suddenly realized that I was completely wrong, and he or she was completely right, and I just totally changed my worldview. Usually, it's more along the lines of, I heard some Libertarian candidate, or I heard a Libertarian speaker, and I went, my God, where have you people been all my life? Yeah. Okay, that's what I believe. That's what happened to me in college. I read, I looked at that, the, the, those, those writings from Jefferson and Payne, whoever said, well, that's what I believe. Yes. I mean, the, the, the closest I had gotten to at that point was, well, I like the, the, the Republicans at that time was Richard Nixon. So, you know, I, I knew I wasn't that. Um, and so, uh, but that, that, that classical liberal idea, uh, and then over time, Obviously, I became more hardcore and more consistent, which is what the other things might have been my experience. As generally, the longer people spend in the libertarian movement, the more consistent they become, the more hardcore their beliefs. And that's where that, that's where principle becomes important. Yes. That they see how the principle that brought them to a libertarian view on issues A, B, C, and D also leads them in a different direction than maybe they were before on issues E, F, and G. You know, as a as a libertarian, as a as a formal liberal, one of the ones that was harder for me to get to was in uh, things like welfare, uh, and seeing how we could really address those uh, without uh, utilizing government and and coercive taxation. And that that was one of the ones that that I it took me longer to get to than other issues, which were you know other things were really easy. Yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah. Obviously, and then people that come from the right. It may be some other issue that is harder for them to connect. And a lot of times for people to write, it's the drugs. Drugs are one of the hard ones. The to, drugs uh, or the war. I've seen a lot of, of war be, yeah. be one of those things. We're America. Yeah. We're doing the right thing. We're fighting for freedom. And then it's just like, here's, here's just the, have you seen the Afghanistan papers? Oh, I don't. All right. You got me. Yeah. You know, the, the, the fighting, fighting for freedom, um, most of the time, that's not what it ends up being. Uh, in fact, it was, it was interesting. Back um, in uh, late 2002 or, or early 2003, this is when um, you could see that we were leading up to war in Iraq. And um, uh, I had left the Libertarian Party headquarters. I was working with uh, Harry Brown, uh, Jim Babka, Perry Willis at the, uh, uh, with the American Liberty Foundation. And we put out a, site, a website, uh, truthaboutwar.com, I believe. It's still up there um, and basically said, look, we're being lied into war. All the stuff you're being told, it's a lie. Here's how we know it's a lie. They're going to they're going to they're going to claim this. They're claiming this, this, this and this. None of this is true. Here's how we know it's not true. Here's where they've done this before. And on the day they invaded, we froze the site and it basically said, look, when they come back and say, Oh, we had no way of knowing. We've got it laid out here. Yes, you did. You knew, you did know, you had the information. Yep. It didn't fit your agenda. Yeah. Um, so, in fact, anybody who wants to go see it, it's still there. I said truthaboutwar.com. 
and you can see all the, the evidence that we laid out about why there were no weapons of mass destruction, no weapons of mass destruction would be found, um, and all the, that there was no connection between Iraq and 9-11, uh, all those things. Um, now, there was something that you'd mentioned a little bit earlier um, off of my question that I wanted to, to touch on for, for two reasons. One of those was um, when I had asked about, you know, when we talk to a, a Republican or a Democrat, the purpose. And, of course, we want to find those people who are unknowingly libertarians and, and bring them in. But it's also about, in my opinion, is about finding uncommon allies. I have friends that oh, are Republicans and Democrats that they will fight with me to change policies that we have in the legislature, uh, fight on initiatives and everything else. And, and so it's great to have those allies. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's important that when we talk about this stuff that we look at ourselves and we say, we may not agree on everything, but here's the things, here's the values that we do agree upon. And now how can we, how can we better this together? Those are things that can help grow. And eventually because of exactly what you went down with that, that consistency trail, We'll turn them on one topic to another topic to another topic, and then they're raising the black flag, screaming about down with the state. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and and that's also it's important in, in inside the libertarian movement, and it's even more important when we're making these outside connections. You know, I can't think of how many times that we've lost people because they started interacting with other libertarians. And go, oh yeah, we agree here, we agree here, we agree here. Oh, we don't agree here, and all of a sudden it becomes fighting over the one thing they don't agree with and ignoring the 10 things they agreed with. Yes. Um, we yes. should, we should work together on the things we agree with and, you know, agree to respectfully disagree on things we don't and hope that uh, over time uh, they will come along. Uh, I think, again, I think it was Michael Cloud that mentioned when you put the cucumber in a jar of uh, brine, uh, the brine doesn't become cucumbered. The cucumber becomes a pickle. Um, and, you know, if you put a, proto-libertarian and with a group of libertarians, you're not going to turn the libertarians to become back to status. Yeah. Uh, you're going to, you're going to have the proto-libertarian become a more consistently anti-statist. So what you're saying is, is that everyone in the audience right now needs to recruit friends to come watch Muddy Waters Media so that we can create some pickles together. I love the absolutely, plug. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I love the plug. Uh, <laughs> well, Steve, we're coming up at the end of uh, end of the hour. This flew by. I, I love this conversation. I love um, learning and continuing to grow on being able to be better about communicating, learning from a lot of the things that you were talking about tonight and helping us out. Um, with just being able to communicate people on both sides of the aisle and, and those tactics. Um, I want to give you some time because I know you're on the campaign trail right now. I want to let you let you plug yourself and plug everywhere we can find you. Well, I mean, I think the, uh, the I'll do the first the last part first. Um, my website is uh, stevedosbach.com or .org. Either one of them works. Uh, or if you want to email me, it's steve at stevedosbach.org. Um, the, uh, I am running for uh, national chair, which is the, uh, the Libertarian Party, which is the position I held uh, back in the 90s. That's the period where uh, during that period, we grew our membership grew by uh, 180%. Our uh, fundraising grew 200%. Our media appearances grew by 500%. Uh, when I left as uh, ex executive director, uh, we were doing uh, fifth, an average of 56 media appearances every month. Um, cable news shows, national syndicated radio. 
I'm reasonably sure we're not anywhere close to that uh, at present, based on what I'm seeing. We were typically doing uh, one or two press releases a week. Again, I don't see us uh, doing that. So I want to be able to get back to the point. We're still in a situation where our highest membership and fundraising numbers in the party were from the year 2000 when I was executive director. That's more than 20 years ago. Oh, wow. Uh, that That is sad. And um, I, I am tired of having that record. If I, I, I'd rather have that be a new record, not an old one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, no, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, I want to be able to try to bring the party together, again, not by one side winning ultimate victory and pushing the others aside, but bringing people together with differing views, looking for common ground and the areas where we can overlap and work together, uh, because that's how we get a united uh, organization. That's how we get a united movement. And that's how we make real progress. I appreciate it so much, Steve. Um, thank you. Thank you for, for taking the time coming on here. I have always loved uh, you know, the first time, if I can share a story, the first time I met you was we here in Greenville County, we've got a, an adopt a highway and Steve was telling me all about being a high school teacher as we're out there picking up trash. I mean, if you want to talk about somebody going out there, picking up the shovel and, and taking action, I mean, Steve is there. Um, but thank you so much, Steve, for, for cutting the drink short tonight to come on and hop on with me. Happy to do that. And I'll, I'll put on one final plug. Uh, Kelsey Lyon did uh, great work for the campaign. So uh, if you do need uh, design work done, uh, go see Kelsey. She'll, she'll do you right. Hey, checks in the mail for that one. Thanks for the plug. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Steve, thank you so much. And, uh, and I'll thank see you. you here in a little bit. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Whew. There we have it. Another fantastic uh friday night show i love you guys i appreciate you guys all so much you guys be well um make sure you guys tune in next week tuesday night spike and cohen matt and or spike and matt not spike and cohen you guys wish it was tasha um spike and matt will be traversing the muddy waters of freedom tuesday night 8 p.m uh wednesday night spike cohen will be on with my fellow americans thursday night writer's block and of course we'll be back here Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern, Freedom Time, with another fantastic discussion. I want to say, I want to say next weekend's, uh, let me pull that up for you guys real quick. I don't, I don't want to leave you guys hanging too far, because um, I love plugging my own stuff. You guys know me. Uh, next Friday will be Michelle, Michelle uh, Makuchian. I probably butchered her name and I'm, I'm going to get upset with or She's going to get upset with me and that's fine. It's going to be all about recruitment and outreach because we can communicate. We can now then go out, do some outreach and recruit people to help with uh, ballot access, with initiatives, with getting people elected. So we're going to continue on growing and developing in our own so we can push Liberty to the forefront. With that, I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. Have a very merry uh, Easter and uh, hopefully you guys got to enjoy a good Friday today with a double header from Mr. America, the Beard of Truth. I hope you guys take care. See you guys soon. Keep fighting the good fight.